Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. After producing 20 podcast episodes in our first season, I'm honored to say that we attracted a listening audience in 99 different countries around the world last year. A true credit to the guests that I've been fortunate enough to interview, not to mention the truly differentiated leadership insights that they all shared. So as we start season two, I want nothing more than to sustain that level of quality. And so it's a huge honor for me to kick things off with an HR legend in the startup world, Patty McCord. For 12 years, Patty was the chief talent officer at Netflix, one of the most financially successful and innovative companies on the planet. And as you're about to hear, Patty's ideas on talent management don't always square with traditional thinking. And that's really the whole reason that she's here. It's very likely that some of you are amongst the 5 million people who downloaded the culture deck that she and Netflix founder and CEO Reed Hastings created a few years ago. And just last year, Patty fully fleshed out the Netflix leadership philosophy and culture in her first book called Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. The Business Insider recently named it one of the best business books of 2018. Early in Patty's book, she tells readers that they might find themselves pushing back on certain points. And this is her warning to say that some of the things that they did at Netflix might not be adoptable or transferable at other organizations. With this note as front and center, I'll remind you that not too long ago, a company in the United States called Blockbuster Video was the dominant player in the home entertainment industry. Netflix was David to this Goliath, and there was a Blockbuster store in every neighborhood. Today, of course, Blockbuster is gone. They're no longer in business. And while Netflix has 137 million users worldwide and its stock price appreciated over 1,300% in just the past seven years, making it one of the most successful equity investments of all time. So is it possible you'll end up rejecting some of the practices that have helped Netflix become this remarkably successful? Perhaps, probably yes. But will you also hear ideas that could help you transform the success of your team and organization in truly unimaginable ways? I know for certain that you will. So keep your mind and heart open and then decide what your big takeaways are going to be. And without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Patty McCord. Thanks for having me, Mark. Glad to be here. Well, I'm actually really excited, and I've got a ton of questions for you. But as I was thinking about the questions that I wanted to ask you, I thought, okay, my audience hasn't read the book. Maybe some have, but I really wanted to sort of put a framework around maybe some of the things that I'm anticipating you'll say in relationship to the book and the questions that I have. I had the sense that there might be a difference between what the startup world is compared to like a traditional organization that's been around for a long time. So my first question is, can you give us an overview of what you think the unique HR challenges are that startups specifically face? Yeah. And I do think there's huge differences in different ages of the company or different phases of the company. I look at my world like the world of HR inside of a business. I'm very anthropological. And so I'm interested in how groups go from, you know, villages to cities to countries, you know, sort of how we structure ourselves as we work. So here's how I usually describe startups. I say to founders and startups, look, the first hundred people, here are the qualities that you want in those first hundred employees. You want them to be extraordinarily hardworking because most of the problems that you solve are problems of difficulty because you're making things up. 
And the whiteboards are not full of, yes, this is the answer. The whiteboards are full of not that, not that, not that, not that, because you solve problems by kind of ramming your head against the wall. So you want people who are willing to work really hard, just put the effort into it. The second thing you want is you want the smartest people that you can surround yourself with for what you can afford to pay them. And usually in a startup, there's some form of equity involved, which leads me to qualification number three, which is people have to believe because all startups are dumb ideas. You know, when I talk to people about the companies I'm working with that are small startups, you know, my wise and friends always shake their heads and go, that's a really stupid idea. And I remind them that obvious, brilliant ideas usually are already occurring. So a startup by its nature is a goofy idea. And the thing is that usually if your startup is successful, and here's the big transition point, what if you could actually pull it off? And what if you actually got enough money to do it? And what if there were enough customers and enough market to fill this idea that you have? Then those first hundred people may or may not be the right people to move to the next phase because the next phase usually encompasses problems of complexity or difficulty or scale. So you nailed the last piece there that I'm happy you mentioned because this kind of comes out really loud and clear in your company, which is that this is Netflix we're talking about, but we're really talking about startups in general, that if you're successful, you're going to grow rapidly, you're going to change rapidly. I mean, you mentioned in the book that there was a day where you had people stuffing envelopes with a million DVDs a day, sending them yeah. back and forth to people. And then you yeah. obliterate that whole technology, you start streaming. And the people that were doing that, obviously, you don't need them any longer. So you're sort of in this, I need this kind of skill. I don't need this kind of skill. I need another kind of skill. And that maybe is relevant to some larger companies, certainly, but it's definitely relevant to a company like yours. Well, one of the questions you asked was, what's the role of HR in a startup? And I'll paraphrase it into, I've come to believe that the role for those of us who are in talent organizations is to constantly be looking forward and not backwards. And if you look at most of the systems that we have traditionally for managed people, it's in arrears. Here's your performance last year. Here's what you accomplished last year, right? Here's what we did. And, and so what you need to do is be so deep in the business for any leader in any business so that you're able to look forward and say, What's it going to take for us to be successful? What's it going to take for us to make our customers supremely happy? What's it going to take for the business to grow? And then work from that end game back to the people that you have on the team. So I know I say harshly, we don't need them anymore. And it doesn't mean they're used up or we're through with them. It means that the new team is a different composition than the other team. I think people understand that. And I think you also make a really good point here about the HR role and how it's successful. We have a large HR audience here and having worked with HR business partners in my career, the ones that fully understand what I was trying to achieve and accomplish and were my partners and could come in and say, hey, I was thinking about your challenge or our challenge and here's what I would do. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had a marriage made in heaven, right? Yeah. So it's redirecting HR folks into seeing themselves as intimate 
as being integral is really the better word that I'm looking at rather than peripheral. Yeah, I've only discovered this since I've left. I didn't think about these things when I was there because I didn't have to. But in reflection, I would say my role at Netflix as the HR person was to be the COO of the culture which meant I had to take who we said we were going to be and how we're going to operate together and operationalize that in terms of like, is there a policy? Isn't there a policy? If there's a policy, what is it? How do we operate? What's our severance agreements? How do we think about talent? What about recruiting, right? All of those operational things that are aligned with having a great culture. Or I would say I was the product manager for people which was I had to say, am I treating the teams that we're creating with the same care as I treat any other product in the company? And then recently, I mean, really, this is like I've been thinking about this in the last couple of weeks. When you say my favorite HR people have been true business partners, like you don't have to say that about your CFO. Correct. Right? Or or your head of engineering or your CMO. Because those are the business partners that you have that bring expertise to those particular functions that they are in charge of. It's the same thing. I'm not advocating a radically different way of operating as a leader. I'm just saying you should have the same level of responsibilities and skills and contribution as any other function in the organization. I totally agree with you. And I'm just punctuating it because I think it's not the way it always, you know, I think you go back in history, it used to be HR departments, which meant separate, you know, its own world, its own management, and they sort of look down on the world, but they're not necessarily part of the world. And that's really what you're advocating for. And I- Oh my God. And you know, we could go on forever. About <laughs> I mean, and with their own language that nobody else in the world speaks at all. I mean, I was just consulting with a really cool startup and they had hired a more senior HR person from a large corporation. And she was very, very good and very practical and pragmatic, smart. I liked her a ton. And so I'm doing this debrief with her and she says, you know, Patty, the issue with this matrix organization is that the cross-functional communication issues don't cascade. You know, in a global, globally integrated HR global oh. initiative process. And she goes, and furthermore, I feel like nobody knows what I'm talking about. And I, I took her, <laughs> her little face in my hands, you know, I'm like, they don't, they don't know what you're talking about. And more important, look me in the eye. What you just said doesn't matter. And it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I love you. I mean, really, right? You have to speak their language. So not their language, our language, the language of the business. Here's another thing that I see that makes me crazy. I did some work with a very growing, important startup that you would know. And the head of HR, she said, yeah, we're going to do this big offsite. And we're going to talk about all the stuff you and I have talked about. Should we invite the recruiters? Oh. And she didn't even think of them as part of HR. Like, I'm just like, oh, we can't work together. I know. I mean, I can see why you're annoyed, right? So I'm really grateful that you're calling this out. It's craziness. Yeah, the people who bring talent in your organization don't matter. Are you kidding? I'm with you, sister. All right. So I want to get now into the heart of the matter, if you will. And the thing is, is that very early in your book, and I, I don't think I've ever seen this. So kudos to you. 
You actually say, you, you make this deliberate point of telling readers that they might be annoyed by some of the things that you're going to say in this book and that they're going to push back on certain points. So it's like you obviously have the experience of people doing exactly that. So my question is, what is it that you specifically expected readers might resist in this book? Well, you know, the basic myth that we keep telling people about employment has been false for so long, but we've repeated it so many times that it's really hard to divorce yourself from that. And that myth is, if I join your firm and I'm a productive and happy employee and I come to work on time and I contribute to the business, then you will give me a lifelong, you know, we'll have lifelong employment and you'll take care of me. Conversely, employers think that, you know, if I'm good to them and I pay them well, then they'll be loyal and they'll stick with me forever, right? Both are completely untrue. They've been untrue for decades. So I just did a talk with a thousand CEOs in the room, right? A thousand CEOs from Fortune 100 companies. It's a big deal. Okay, this is up in Canada. And I say, raise your hand if you're in the job that you had when you graduated from college. How many people raise their hand? Zero. 1,000 people in the room. Raise your hand if you think an important metric in your company is retention. Mm -hmm. 998 of them raise their hands. I'm like, you do see that this is insane, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, you do see that the fundamental premise that, that we're all working under is false. Well, tell me why, because I'm not sure that everybody agrees with you. And I'm not sure that everybody even understands you because we do think retention is important. I would say in the big picture that very few people think lifetime employment exists anymore and that that's an appeal from either side. Like if I do good for you, you're going to keep me forever. Or if you do good for me, I'll stay yep. forever. I think people have pretty much figured that component doesn't work anymore. But yeah. the idea that managers are working to retain people and not just have people turning over all the time and replacing them and starting all over again. I need to understand why you think this is such a bad idea. Yeah, I think it's a bad idea because one of the things I've realized looking back, I mean, a whole bunch of what I've been learning is being outside of the day-to-day -day work. You know, like you, I was inside of a company just doing my job. And now from the outside, I realize that our work and our careers is a continuous series of projects and things that we're working on together with our other team members to accomplish. And most of those things have beginnings and ends, right? You spoke of the DVD by mail business. The DVD by mail business took us oh gosh, five or six years to perfect, right? With hundreds of people. And it wasn't that I wanted to retain them for the sake of retaining them. I wanted them to be around so that we created the world's best DVD by mail product. And once that product was complete and we didn't need to reinvent it and there weren't that many more tweaks to do, then it was time to assemble a different team. And so one of the things I think we could do a much better job of is have all of us have our expectations somewhat surrounded by a shorter time frame. So it's that open-ended stuff that I think gets us in trouble right? Retention for the sake of retention, right? You don't really want to retain everybody when you've finished a project and you need a different team to do the next job, right? So that's, so we get caught up in those. We kind of say it means forever, but we don't really mean forever. And as an employee, we kind of know that they don't mean forever, 
but we're not going to do anything proactively about our own careers until the company tells us it's time to do that. All right. So I'm hoping not to get ahead of myself here because I've got to organize my questions in the order that I think they'll make sense to the audience. But since you're bringing this up and now I'm an employee and I've busted my rear end to perfect this whole system and I'm feeling like I'm very much part of the organization and the next embodiment. Look at what I'm doing here. We're getting a million of these things out every day. We're doing it perfectly. The number of customers is growing rapidly and we're making money. And now the company says, we're going to stream. So we don't really need this role anymore. Do you do it in a layoff where you just say, organizationally, we're going in a new direction, so we're laying everybody off? Do you give people a heads up that maybe six months from now, we're probably not going to be doing this anymore, so let's help you get a new job? Or you just fire people? What's the process? Okay, this is a perfect example. What we did was we gave people visibility into every aspect of the operation of the business. How many DVDs we were shipping, how much profit we were making, how many new customers we were acquiring, how long they stayed, what the cost per shipping of DVD each and every disc was. We used to do a meeting in our parking lot. This is a true story that we called in the parking lot every Friday. We called it the metrics meeting. And we literally passed out a piece of paper that was the executive dashboard. And basically, I didn't realize it at the time, but basically we were teaching people how to read a P&L, right? So at one point, we knew that when we went from the cost of shipping a DVD from 80 cents per disc to 0. 0.0005, oh. <laughs> that everybody could see that we were pretty close to perfection, as much as you can get perfection, right, in terms of the efficacy of that system. And we had been talking about it every day for five years. So when we could have conversations where people would say, wow, it feels like we're not going to really innovate on the back-end software anymore. What does that mean to me? I could say, I think you're right. So let's see. On the streaming side, here's what that looks like. What is your interest in doing this? What's your skill level? What are you able to do in order to contribute to the streaming side? And almost always it was not much because the people that were interested in solving that back-end shipping of physical objects problem were different people than the people that were interested in. And it wasn't streaming at the time. It was downloading to play back. <laughs> which was a completely different technological stack and a different problem to solve. So are you saying that they could see themselves in this, that they weren't, you know, sort of deluding themselves into thinking, oh, I could do that. You're saying, right, the technology is changing. This is what you used to be doing. This is where we're heading. Where do you see yourself fitting in? Where most of them be able to say, I don't fit in. I mean, were they saying that or were they saying, don't let me go. I'll figure it out. I'll work hard. They were saying both to be honest, and that those conversations during that time helped me have conversations with people as the business went on and changed over time, which it still is, right? To be able to have conversations with people fairly early, as soon as you could see the trend of the organization, the trend of the team changing. So in that particular situation, there were awkward and terrible conversations that were just like you said, what, I've been here six years. Are you kidding me? Are you telling me you don't need me anymore? I would have to stop and think, could I really tell them the truth, right? Is it cruel to tell them the truth or is it cruel not to? And your answer? Right. And my answer is it's cruel not to. 
So take us through the conversation. So I agree with you, by the way. So there's a story in the book that I'll tell you, and it was, we had grown 30% quarter over quarter, three quarters in a row compounded. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? I mean, it was amazing, right? And we're at our executive team meeting, and we're talking about what if that growth continued? And our CFO is going to the whiteboard, and he's doing top-line revenue growth, 30% quarter over quarter compounded growth. And, you know, we're just like, holy God, look at that. I mean, that, and he's happy dancing, right? That's a lot of money. And at the time, we thought someday, someday, we could be as big as HBO. And I'm really, we thought in our lifetimes. And Ted Sarandos, who's still the head of content, looked at the top line revenue number and he said, You guys, with that kind of money, we could be HBO next year. And it was this crickets silence in the room it's like are you kidding and our head of product said you guys that's a third of the u.s internet bandwidth and i sat with him after the meeting and i said does anybody know how to manage a third of the u.s internet bandwidth <laughs> and he's like i don't know he's british <laughs> he's like i don't quite know patty like, do, do we know how to do that he's like oh no absolutely not <laughs> right so we go back to the IT team and explain this situation to them. And they said, no worries. Why don't you guys go exec something? We'll build a cloud. And this is honestly exactly what I said. I said, you know what? If there's a team of people on this earth that could do that, it's probably you guys. But not in nine months. You'd have to go from learning nothing to managing a third of the U.S. Internet bandwidth possibly by next year. And it's just it's not possible. And one of the people said, I've been here six years. Are you telling me that you don't need me to work on this really amazing project? And I said, I don't know, but I need the best people on the planet to work on it. Because what if we didn't do it? And what if our ability to succeed was hampered because we had the wrong people in the room? So let's just play this out. I, obviously, I know the rest of the story. Some of these people didn't stay. You had to let them go because most they, right, most of them. Okay. So now I'm another guy with six years of experience and I okay, see all the, these. By go, the way, I didn't let them go. They left on their own? They left on their own with both of us knowing that that was what was going on. So you're saying they went out and found other positions or you greased the skids for them by writing them a check? It depends, but mostly they went out and found other positions. And I certainly greased the skids for them to find other positions because they were amazing people. And I gave them fabulous references. And we worked together on who else was working on a project that their experience at Netflix would make them the most amazing people on the team. Okay, so there's this caring aspect that I'm hearing, yep. right? So well played. And I hope everybody understands this, that you can't have that kind of compounded growth quarter after quarter and not realize that you're going to have a monster on your hands if you don't bring in different talent with people who have already managed at that level and that kind of, right, those challenges. So I think we're all on board with that. But what happens to the rest of the culture now when they realize, oh, this is 10 little Indians? In other words, you know, my day is going to come too. And they're going to call me in and they're going to go, do you see yourself in the future? I don't think so. So off you go. Okay. So, but the difference, the deep difference I really want to stress is that hopefully the situation is not 10 little Indians. And someday you're going to be sitting there just innocent as pie when they call you in and they fire you, right? It's a different conversation. It's a conversation that for the next six months, 
is one where we say, huh, not sure this is going to turn out to be the right fit for you. Have we thought about how that's going to work out? Like two adults can talk about any situation, any business problem, any personal problem, any situation that we have come up with in our lives. And what we do wrong in business is we do it to people. And that's not kind and that's not compassionate to all of a sudden be called into the big bad bogeyman's office where they, you know, I hate all the terms. I hate all the words that go with firing. Yeah, like job restructuring you know, and you well, know. no, I I hate firing. It's like there's no weapons, nobody dies, there's not blood. You're not bludgeoned to death in the office of your boss. Hopefully you've had a conversation for a while where you wander into my place and go, not gonna work out for me. What should I how should I think about that? And I sit down and start working with you on writing your resume. We're going to get into this later, but, you know, what that experience taught me, Mark, that was so profound was what you want to give people is you want to give people experiences and situations that are resume worthy so that when you leave, which you will probably most everywhere, that you leave with something that makes you more valuable. Well, I just read that the average tenure in America today is about four years. So people aren't sticking around on both sides, right? So I think that seems to be the new world order. I'll tell you, you know, in, in managing large teams of people, when I found people that were really extraordinary, I didn't want to see them go. And I would do everything that I could to, you know, whatever it was that they needed for me to support in terms of their needs to make sure that they felt like I want to stick around here. So- we certainly did that. <laughs> I mean, I was just at Netflix a couple of weeks ago and, you know, not very many people know me anymore because I've been gone for so long. But the people that know me, you know, I hired them 16 years ago. Right. They've been there for a very long time. All I'm saying is it's not everybody. Well, to that point, and because I want to transition into some of the other hot issues here, but tell everyone, what was your annual turnover? Depended on the organization, depended on what parts of the business were changing. So I didn't look at those numbers. I stopped looking at annual turnover. The story that we just talked about, about changing the technology from DVD by mail to digital streaming, that particular team's turnover in one particular year was probably 70%. But there might have been another team where nobody left and all we did was hire And there might have been another team that we staffed from scratch because nobody in the company knew how to do it. We had to start over again. Mm -hmm. So that's why this sort of global initiative, global measurement, global, you know, there's a lot of nuances in how different teams turn over. And, you know, I think the four years, I've been thinking about that too. I think the four-year average, remember it's an average, which means some people stay 15 and some people stay four months, right? So that four-year average probably reflects how quickly things change in business now, right? So that I used to think of it, I, I changed jobs every four years until I went to Netflix and I would think about it as like my own personal degrees. <laughs> you know, I got a degree in this kind of technology. I think you have to. And technology is accelerating that. Irrespective of your own industry and the tech industry, technology is changing all of our lives. And I think, you know, if absolutely to reinvent yourself is the smartest thing you can do because, you know, it, it, it can happen to you or you can ride the wave and say, I'm anticipating where this change is going to be taking me and I'm going to have to develop yeah. some new tools. 
Yeah, I often get charged with predicting the future. You know, can I sit on a panel of the future of work? And sometimes I say, wait a minute, you know, a lot of what we're talking about isn't the future, it's already here. Right. Right. You know, I had a firm that said, well, you know, we require employees to be in the office from nine to five. How do you feel about working remotely? And I said, I just can't believe we're having this conversation in 2018. And I said, do you take their phones away from them at five when they leave? Because they're not a phone. They're taking their computer in their hand. Everybody works remotely. (laughs) So, you know, and everybody's. Well, I don't think everybody knows how to manage that effectively. We're comfortable watching people, you know, in their space, in their wherever their workspace is. That gives us comfort. And when people are outside, we think they're screwing around and they're actually more productive. Yeah, well, that's. That's a bad idea. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's bad. You know, you just circled back to another really important component of what I talk about, which is freedom and responsibility. Thank you. Which is about, you know, the way that we learn to trust each other as co-workers and people that are coming together on a team to accomplish something amazing is because if you tell me that you're going to deliver something on time with quality, I trust that you're going to do it. And I don't have to see that you're at your desk to trust you. I trust you because of what you deliver. So, you know, we're in another category now, which is about, you know, that kind of management of watching people physically be at their desk. And that's, that's so old school. <laughs> it's just not how we work. It's just not the truth in any company that I see now. And I and I am in companies from 150,000 people to 150 people. Well, we're hitting your top list of pet peeves here, which is fantastic because <laughs> we're illuminating the book as we go. Uh-huh. But there are a couple of points here that I really want to make sure we cover. And okay. you have a quote in the book. And I tweeted this out. And I can't tell you how many responses I got. And the responses were identical. So basically what I'm going to tell you is, I'm going to read this, but I'm going to tell you that what people responded was, hell yeah, she's absolutely right. So here's what it says. A Deloitte study showed that 70% of employees in a wide range of sectors admit to remaining silent about issues that might compromise their organization's performance. So they have an idea, they have an observation, but they don't feel comfortable. And the principal reaction that I got from people was, I'm not going to get slammed for challenging my boss or his or her thinking, so I'm just laying low. And I heard it over and over. I mean, this feedback on Twitter lasted two or three days. So people are really passionate about this. So my question is, do we have a lot of weak managers out there, insecure managers? And I need you to transition into and introduce the idea of radical honesty, because it seems to me that this grew out of this statistic. Yeah, I was listening to the radio yesterday. I heard this NPR show on about how people perceive well-being and happiness. And the number one aspect, particularly at work, that humans, to create a feeling of warmth and belonging, was respect. And so I think that, I I wouldn't call them weak, Mark. I would say that we have a whole generation of managers who aren't particularly skilled at giving feedback honestly, in a timely manner, with great respect. And partly it's because they don't see it. So people can't be what they can't see. And so if 
employees are all, you know, looking up to their upper levels of management and watching everybody make speeches about respect and honor and communication and candor. And yet that's not how they're operating and they're backbiting and backstabbing and talking about people behind their backs, you know, and they don't see people say on stage in front of each other in a meeting, you know, Mark, I got to tell you, I totally disagree with you on this point. And we've talked about it before, but let's talk about our disagreements here in front of the rest of the people at the meeting so they can understand the different places that we're coming from. So here's a very simple exercise I tell people. When somebody says, well, management should have seen this coming, management did this wrong, then you want to ask the person, you have to teach people how to think on their feet. You have to teach people how to communicate effectively. When that happens, if somebody is brave enough to speak up, you want to ask them two questions, and the second one's more important. The first question is, if you were in management, what decision would you make? The second question is, if you were in management, what information would you want to have to make the best decision? And because we don't actively solicit information from people, people don't speak up partly because no one asks them to. Well, but they might also be fearing the reaction of, I disagree with what you just said. Yes. That's where I'm suggesting, and I'm not alleging that managers are weak either, by the way, but I'm asking you in terms of your understanding, why is it that people don't feel comfortable speaking up? Because something in the culture points to the fact that when they do, they get punished. So that's where management in those organizations has to take a good hard look in the mirror and say, if this is happening, you know, if if your Twitter feed went on for two days about this, then I mean, I'm dying to know about this. Let's both go back on Twitter and go, what's the situation? What did you fear? Have you seen other people be punished? Have you seen your idea be put down? Do you feel like you're heard? And my experience with most people in leadership positions is they do bad stuff because they don't know how to do good stuff. They don't see it, right? So when I meet with uh, the thousand CEOs in the room, I say to them, you know that everybody riffs off of your behavior and your great culture and your culture of radical honesty and transparency comes from you to start with and your team second. So, you know, it's a constant learning thing that all of us have to do, but we have to very practically make sure that people can see disagreement and solution happen and people live. I love the idea of honesty. I love the idea of transparency. I love the idea of candor. I think it's kind, which is another aspect of the TED Talk podcast you were listening to yesterday, Mm -hmm. the impact of kindness. And I think the approach that you're taking makes all the sense in the world. At the same time, when I'm reading you describe this idea. So in other words, we have this issue where people don't feel comfortable. So you make them feel very comfortable. So it's the it's the polar opposite. Or is it? Because in your book, you describe the conversations that people have with this notion of radical honesty. And I'll just, you know, I'm looking at the notes I have here, blunt, combative, heated, intense, fighting, you know, so was... Was this a a knockdown, drag out conversation where people come out of these meetings bloodied and just as angry about speaking up as the people in this research or? Here's the nuance. Here's the difference. They can be all of those things 
And if those conversations and those debates and those disagreements are had for the sole result of gaining the best experience for the customer, then it's okay. Why does it need to be radical? Right. Why can't it just be honesty? Why can't people just have a civil conversation? I mean, I don't I, I don't know if I threw radical in my book, but I'm getting kind of tired of that phrase too, right? I completely agree with you. Let's just strike radical from the conversation. Here, here. Say honest, right? And the reason why it's become radical is that we've gone so far in the other direction, which is you can't disagree at all. Thank you. Exactly what I was thinking you did. Yeah. And so to hear from you to say, put the radical away and just have direct, honest, caring communication with people, that resonates so strongly. Yeah. And obviously, 70% of the time, people feel that that doesn't exist in their organization. So that's a big ask. You know, and the other thing I'd love to change if I had my magic wand, I would not empower people. But what I would do is say, here's the dilemma. We've come to believe that feedback equals constructive criticism equals telling somebody that they're not going to want to hear in a nice way, right? And if you really want to change people's behavior, none of that is effective at all. And we forget that radical honesty and radical feedback and candor can be, oh my God, Mark, what you just did, that's exactly what I meant. That was amazing. How come we don't talk about feedback as being positive? Because I think we tend to think, what if I'm going to give somebody feedback, then it needs to be constructive and critical. I think we are hardwired, sadly, as human beings to see the limitations in people. I think we feel like when we give people recognition, it's like having to reach into our wallets, like we're giving something away. But I'm not talking about that kind of recognition. I mean, this was also in the podcast yesterday. It was not recognition, it's appreciation. And for me, the biggest change we can make as leaders is to do either one of these things or both, which is giving people feedback in the moment. But appreciative, not just critical, right? Appreciative in the moment when it happens, right? In the same way in the meeting, I can say, you know, Mark, we're about to make a decision here about something that I know you disagree with because you've been talking to me about it for months and you haven't said a word. Did we change your mind? Mm. Right. I'm not picking on you. I'm just curious. Like, do you still disagree? And if you do, boy, it's going to be hard to note your perspective on this situation if you don't speak. (laughs) And in the same way, we can also say, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way. You've changed my mind. Thanks for that. These are learnable, teachable skills. This is humans aren't wired one way or the other. So you have a hundred managers who are listening to this and like, eh, that's not a strength of mine. How do you build this strength? Oh, get over it. <laughs> no, no, I, I get that. But, but be, you know, be prescriptive. You practice, right? So that's why people say to me, you know, you're so good at giving feedback like this. How did you get so good at it? And I say, because I did it. I do Mm -hmm. it every day, right? It's called practice. And that's where I go ballistic about how we've systematized things like this so that, well, you know, I'll wait and give them that feedback in their annual performance review. I'll just save that for that time because otherwise I'm going to disrupt things right now. And, you know, 
know, it's going to make people uncomfortable. Or, you know, if I call you out for doing a great thing, then other people are going to feel like I'm not calling, you know, so I'll just, I'll save all that and package it up until the annual performance review, which, you know, I say, is there anything else you do once a year that you're good at? No. (laughs) So, so that's where just simply by practicing giving people feedback, both positively and negatively, 50-50 in the moment can change your life. Does it need to be 50-50? I don't know. It's got to be closer to 50-50 than 70-30, you know, the other way around. So I can say when I'm talking to, you know, young HR professionals about sexual harassment, I'm like, look, we have to sit down with people when they're 24 years old and Teach them how to say, hey, don't don't look at my chest instead of my face when you're talking to me. It's weird. It makes me uncomfortable. At 24, you got to just learn to say that. Yep. And then that person will go, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. I'm sorry. And they'll stop. But when you don't say anything until they're 45 with a sexual harassment lawsuit, you know, I mean, I, I'm using this extreme example of giving people honest feedback in the moment isn't that hard it's not like you have to dig deep i can say you're making me crazy man well before we move on are you advocating that companies declare honesty and candor as being like this has to be a cultural element that you need to not just put on a wall but i mean you need to live and you need to encourage and you need to reward people who are doing it call out people who aren't doing it is that what your prescription is here oh hell yeah hallelujah Okay. All right. Good. So I need to move on here because there's just so much I want to talk to you about. And, you know, really the next thing has to do with what you're talking about annual reviews and how, well, I'll just call it out. Some organizations are enlightened around this and they figured out that meeting once a year and looking backwards makes no sense. So they're having much more regular communications with people. But I'm not personally convinced that just saying we're going to have more regular communications, that all managers are effective at making those meetings really successful. Right. So what do we talk about in those meetings? And so you have the quintessential example of what a coaching session looks like. And it's from a coach and it's not just from a coach. It's from a coach who's the hall of fame national hockey league. He's won more games than any other coach. I think he won nine different Stanley cup championships with three different teams and he's got the whole system nailed. So tell us what it is. His name is Scotty Bellman. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite parts of Scott Bowman's story was I'm, I was doing a talk in Canada in Montreal at the bell stadium. And well, I'm not a hockey fan. I live in California. I know nothing about it. I know I read who he was, but I had never, you know, it just sort of didn't sink in with me. And I met him behind stage and he was this lovely, you know, 70 something year old grandpa and just this sweet, sweet man. And when we both came up on stage, the Bell Center is a hockey stadium. It's where the Stanley Cup is played, right? The audience goes wild and he gets this total standing ovation. And I realized, oh my God, I'm not just here with this man, Stanley. I'm with a living God, right? So the moderator says, Mr. Bowman says all those things you just said. You've won so many games. You're just great. You worked with all the greats. What's your secret to success? And he says, we play an 80-game season, and every 10 games, I sit down with each player on the team, 
I run the statistics on their particular position and how well they've done. Is it speed? Is it agility? Is it scores? Whatever it is. So we have the statistics to base it with. They do a self-evaluation. I do an evaluation of them. If there are other members of the team who have relevant input, then we get input from them. And we sit down and we have a conversation and we talk about who our competition is, what new games are coming up, how well the team is operating together. We put together a plan for making sure that we have the right drills and we have the right practices, who they're going to team up with so that the team can function together as well as they possibly can be because the object of us doing this is for all of us to win. And sometimes when I talk to companies about this, I'm like, you know, he's putting together this thing. It's called a performance improvement plan. (laughs) And he means it as a performance improvement plan. What a concept. (laughs) But not in a punishing way. No, he doesn't mean what we mean, which is we're secretly trying to humiliate you and fire you. Okay, so he says all of this, right? And he says it in a very matter-of-fact way because, you know, I want my players to be at the top of their game because our objective of coming together is to win the game. The moderator looks at me and says, Patty McCord, uh, you've written about, you've spoken about that, how much you hate the annual performance review, but I've never heard you tell anyone what you would do instead. And I said, what he said. Yeah. Ditto. Right? I mean, it's just, it's so common sense, right? And I think that when I told you earlier about how my job was the COO of the culture, I didn't just say, okay, no more annual performance review. Y'all just talk to each other some more. You know, talk amongst yourselves. Right. This is the gap, right? And what Bowman did that I thought was so brilliant was, Obviously, he tells them, we've got 80 games, so we're going to get together eight times during the season. That's right. We're going to review your performance from my point of view. We're going to review your performance from the other coaches and your peers' point of view. And we're going to ask you to do your own, you know, self-evaluation. And the magical moment in his description is, and then we're going to focus on what do we need to do for the next 10 games. And that is when I said, hallelujah. I just thought, this is brilliant. To win as a team. Right? As a team. To win. Right? Not, yes. And of course he does win. Right. We're not going to figure out what we're going to do to figure out your career progression for the next five years. Correct. Right. Right. I mean, I just love this. Yeah. I just think this is like if, if managers map this over, just take this and practice with this and get good at this. I know. It's the coolest. Infinitely more success. That was my convinced takeaway. And that's where I'm getting so much inspiration from sporting coaches. Here's another story that's not in the book. I I went to a conference and the head coach of the San Antonio Spurs was speaking. Yay. And and it was an organizational development, diversity, and inclusion conference. So this is Greg Popovich you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so and it's a very touchy feely audience. And someone in the audience says, "Mr. Popovich, I just can't imagine what it's like to be you. I mean, you search the world for these incredible players. You give them an amazing arena to perform in. They work there." hardest they do their best they work their hearts out and then it must just break your heart at the end of every season where you have to cut people from the team and he looks at her square in the face and he goes no it's professional basketball they signed up for it they know how it works he's like incredulous he's like i don't know what you're talking about at all 
<laughs> and I'm in the audience thinking, why can't we just talk to people like that? Well, because I think, you know, I mean, you're talking about somebody who I had Daniel Coyle on the podcast last year. Uh, and in his book, In Culture Code, he focuses on people like like Popovich. And the other side of this, I mean, that's the brain saying, of course, I've got to have the most talented people or I'm not going to be in this job for very long and we're not going to win. On the other side, there's nobody more caring, supportive, more heart-driven than Greg Popovich. Absolutely. Right? So it's the balance between heart and mind, which is the whole theme of the show anyway. So again, thanks for ringing the bell here because this is a perfect example, but it's not all heart. You're going to fail if it's all heart. It's just we got to get back in balance. And the reason that Popovich is so successful is because he loves his players. He's always doing things for them. He's thinking about them. He's, he's literally coaching. And it's funny to me that in coaching and in sports, we have no problem with the word heart. But you bring it into business and people are like, oh, and this is the balance that you're talking about. It's so true. One more. I mean, because I'm now like obsessed with sports coaches. So I go to Ireland and on stage is the winningest coach of the Irish games. And I don't know if you know, in Ireland, they have like their own games that nobody else plays in any part of the world, right? And they're bizarre, right? So he says at the end of his talk, he says, you know, I look for the player who's strong. I look for them to be quick runners and have a sharp mind and work very hard. But mostly what I want is spirit. I want a love of the game and a love of their teammates. Heart. He's just full of this passionate and part of his conversation was I want to turn out outstanding young leaders and it's from them that I got the concept of Popovich also says just think if you've played for our team you carry that with you for the rest of your life I was part of that team and that was where I started thinking I mean I've been thinking about it before but part of what I talk about is you want to create an organization that's a great place to be from right if that was what you set out to do which is give people experiences that they'll remember for the rest of their life that they want to repeat wherever they keep going right and that is hard in mind right it's accomplishing something with other people that you loved working with I think that that needs to be the aspiration of leadership In other words, if you work for me and I can leave you better off than you were when you got here and you can look back fondly and say, that person cared about me, supported me, grew me, challenged me, you know, told me when I'm blowing it, all of it, you know, but leaving with the sense that, man, did that person truly care about what was going to happen to me in my life? That's magnificent aspiration because I'll tell you, and I wrote this at the end of my own book, that I don't remember the numbers that we got. I know we were always number one. I know we were always really successful, but I don't remember the numbers. Uh What I remember are the emails that I still get to this day from people that used to work for me saying, I was just thinking about you. I'm thinking about some situation that we had together, and I just want to thank you. That matches over to what you just said about looking back and saying, man, did I get a whole lot from Netflix, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, to push a tiny bit more, I also think that it's also you love and respect the people that don't set you up to fail. You know, coming back to the performance improvement plan and the horrible farce that it's become, right? The reason why people are so cynical about it is we all know it's a farce. And just think, I mean, the kindest thing also is to go, look how much you've learned. 
let's not set you up to fail. Let's make sure that the next thing that you do is amazing and important. So let's see if there's a place for you to do it here. And if not, let's set you up to make sure that you do it in whatever you do next. You still get emails from people who say, you know, remember the time, right? Which means that it's not about like they're only happy when they work for you. Right. Right. You know, if you think about your best friends, and I mean, most of my long-term life friends are people that I've worked with, that I've trusted with everything, and I still do. I mean, those are bonds that really matter for the rest of your life. So I love you. I want to be friends with you. And I totally <laughs> am like loving this whole conversation because I'm in such agreement with it. But we have a tradition on the podcast we call the heartbeat round. And I have a dozen or so questions that I'd like to ask you. But these are all ones that you don't have to think too hard on them, but they just require a quick and instinctive answer. But they always provide some great insight into the person, i.e. you. So your goal, answer each one of these in a heartbeat. You ready? Got it. Yep. All right. Quality you most admire in other people. Honesty. One book that profoundly changed your life. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Saying no. Meditation practice, yes or no? No. Quote that sums up your life philosophy. Be your best and bring out the best in others. The quality you think that derails the most leadership careers. Selfishness, not selflessness. Your best synonym for the word heart. Empathy. Best piece of guidance you can give anyone who works in human resources. Be a business person first. Favorite movie of all time. Color purple. World leader of any era. So this is business, government, spiritual, you name it, that most inspires you. Well, of course, today I've been thinking about Martin Luther King. We're recording this on Martin Luther King Day, so very good. Greatest piece of advice you've ever received. To shut up and listen. (laughs) The life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. I wish I appreciated how good I was sooner. I love that. I love that because I think everybody can take that message and apply it to themselves, which is the goal of this. Thank you, Patty. Your answers to the heartbeat questions were wonderful. And let's get back to the podcast. Okay, thanks. I have to, in the spirit of not the R word anymore, but candor, Mm -hmm. I've read articles that describe your prior organization, Netflix. These are critics, but nevertheless, they call it things like cutthroat, Darwinian, fear-driven, devoid of compassion and empathy. So I'm not picking up any of that from you. So what did these people see and how do you square it with everything we've just talked about? Well, it's not for everybody, right? So it's not for everybody and it's not forever. So I think that the people that describe that situation are people who couldn't really embrace it. You know, so the thing about Netflix that still happens for sure is Netflix is very open and honest with people about this is how it works during the interview process, during the screening process, my book, my articles, you know, the culture deck, we're completely open with this is who we are. And then particularly if you come from another organization that has operated very, very differently for your entire career, you intellectually get it. Mm-hmm. And then when you're there, it's hard to do. Yep. Right. Um, it, you know, my hardest thing before I left, to be honest with you, was reprogramming very senior managers. So by the time I left, we were able to get people from other incredibly famous, you know, successful, larger companies, and I would have to undo them. I mean, they would come to me and say, morale is really low. Can HR do some team building? (laughs) You know, I would respond and go, you want me to build your team? (laughs) Like, no, I don't. 
<laughs> no, it's not my job. I'm like, I don't know. Some people bowl, go bowling. I don't know. I no, we don't have a full menu of team building. You know, right. why are you having a morale issue on your team? I don't know. I'd like you to find out. I'm like, again, you know, I'm not running the team. <laughs> This is your job, right? <laughs> so that is a great example of I might have chosen somebody who I was really excited about joining, who had absolutely the right skills to take us into the future, who had knowledge of stuff at scale that we had never seen before, who had lots and lots of layers and training and management under their belt, who came in and said, oh, okay, here's the role of HR. I need you to make my team happy. I need you to do a lot of parties. I need you to do team building. Oh, by the way, the recruiters haven't given me any resumes that I like, so I don't return their calls. And, you know, I got work to do. Don't bother me with this touchy-feely stuff. And, you know, my response would be like, well, I'm not doing any touchy-feely stuff. (laughs) And it's your team. So we've got to find a middle ground for that. You know, I can coach you on how to better coach your team, but it's your team. That shift of your management, it's your team. It's your team. But the idea that there's a remedy for a morale, like you can just go into the shelf and go, hey, you know, what team building activity do you have that can restore my morale is like insane to me. But yeah, right, right. Yeah, right. I'm sorry. But, be, they all hate each other. I know. Let's do trust falls. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Patty, before we go, I want to ask you just one final question. And really, it's a tradition of the podcast, which is I just turn it over to you and say, based on everything you know I'm interested in and maybe some things that we didn't get a chance to talk about or something that you just really want to emphasize, how would you like to end this podcast? I'd like to end it by saying that we all look for inspiration in other people in terms of what they've done that's innovative, right? And I've realized that sometimes the most innovative thing you can do in your organization is not something new. It's just stopping doing something old that doesn't matter anymore. That clarity of looking at everything that you do, I mean literally everything, and say, what's the reason, what's the purpose of this activity? And if I started over again, would I, A, do it that way, or B, would I just not do it at all? Mm -hmm. Thank you so very much. It's an incredible honor to have you on. This was one of the most electric conversations I've had. It was just (laughs) total passion. So thank you so very, very much. Me too, you. So yeah, friends forever, Mark. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so very much, Patty, for kicking off our second podcast season with such a spirited conversation. And on behalf of all my listeners, I wish you the greatest success with your acclaimed book. And before we go, I'd like you to please do me two favors. I'd be especially grateful if you could take a moment to rate us on iTunes. And also, please introduce us to some of your friends and colleagues. To a still up and coming podcast, supporting us like this means so very much getting the word out and what we're doing here, I can assure you. So in advance, thank you for doing this. And speaking of thanks, I want to thank two of my biggest supporters, Susan DeRoche and Ken Boynton, along with my Seattle-based web manager, Randy Yant, and sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. A man is only as successful as the team behind him. As always, I leave you with my constant reminder that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. Thank you so much for listening. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Mm